Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future, this episode of the podcast is supported by And Soda, a brand new, refreshing, sugar-free, sweetener-free and gluten-free vodka-based alcoholic beverage. God, I love that vodka. And with only 99 calories per can, you can drink tons. Please drink responsibly and the fun stops. Stop. Flavours include vodka orange, British raspberry, and my personal favourite, Mexican lime. Serve chilled and enjoy. Check them out at And Soda across all social platforms. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Lefty, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and Mixcloud. And now, the new episodes are on YouTube for the full, glorious video experience. Simply search Felix Leiter in their house, or visit youtube.com forward slash DJ Felix Leiter, and subscribe. In this episode, I talk to Scott Diaz, a super talented DJ, producer, sound designer, label boss, in fact, an all-round music entrepreneur, about his journey in the industry so far. From growing up in Brighton and getting the dance music bug from an early, early age and getting decks at a stupidly early age, uh, he moved to London, the States a couple of times, he's now back on the South Coast. His story is enthralling, inspiring and brutally honest at times. His views on the state of the industry as a whole and its ever-evolving demands on artists are a reflection of his understanding of the world in which we exist. This has led him to great success and it's an unmissable listen for those on the inside and those interested in the global dance music scene. So, let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Scott Diaz, welcome to the show. How are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. I am. I have been looking forward to this one for a long time. I've been a big fan of your music. And I think because maybe geographically we are at dip- different ends of the country, like you're based in Brighton, I think. Um, yeah. I don't think we've ever really run into each other. Um, and I guess musically we probably diverged in the sense that, you know, my records behind me are kind of sulfuric and subliminal soul and stuff like that from, you know, 15, 16 years ago and all the rest of it. And then I probably took a slightly different path to you and then maybe reconverging a little bit. Um, but I've always had that love of, you know, you vocal house and US garage and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting into it. Um, I'm going to just go straight in to take you all the way back right before DJing, before production, before buying records, all the way back to kind of the first music that you ever heard? Like, not, you know, the first song, but where was it? Was it in a car? Was it parents? Was it siblings? You know, when you're a real young kid, I'm just trying to get a gauge on some of those early influences. Yeah, it would have been all the stuff that my dad would have played around the house. Um, so he was he, he was heavily into kind of a lot of like blues, rock and roll, um, Eric Clapton, Cream, B.B. Uh, King, Johnny Winter, um, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, all that kind of like, you know, 60s, 70s rock and that kind of stuff. And then in more recent years, he kind of got into 
you know stuff like oasis and different bands and he was he was into like reggae and stuff like that so he'd sometimes have bob marley on ub40 i mean i say reggae like that's kind of uh sort of entry level reggae right it's kind of like yeah. commercial reggae people who truly like reggae don't generally you know don't listen to just you know bob marley is like the one that pops out because he's so popular but obviously that's not the entirety of what reggae is but yeah so he was kind of playing that sort of stuff and a few other bits and pieces and that was kind of what i would hear around the house really tom petty and the heartbreakers that kind of thing um so yeah he's he's got a big enthusiasm for music and that's probably where i get it from um he never really understood my music but then most parents don't understand their kids music when especially when it's noisy electronic kind of stuff and you know you're like you know a teenager kind of banging it out and it just sounds like noise to them so but that's but that's the first stuff that that I would have been around musically. Did you grow up in in Brighton? Yes, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, it's an interesting cultural melting pot, Brighton. Again, I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to. Uh, I used to come down and DJ in what was what was digital for a time. I think it was Zap prior to that, and I'm not sure what yeah. it was. You would know what it was before that, but so I haven't spent a lot of time in Brighton, but I am aware that it it's definitely got a really interesting mix of. Um, I don't know, cultural diversity that maybe not everywhere in the UK or certainly England has. Um, do you think that played a part in the music that your dad was kind of into? Probably not because he's not from Brighton. <laughs> okay. Um, he's, he's, he's from London. So um, he was just into, I guess, you know, a lot of that stuff at the time, you know, back in when he was a kid growing up, a lot of those bands it was all about america rock and roll was kind of america's thing and then obviously we kind of had a few you know a few great bands as well that kind of got onto it afterwards but obviously it came from blues and that was you know purely american um but uh yeah i think he was probably exposed to a lot of the american records when he was a kid and um would probably go out in in london and stuff like that to like right and he was kind of into a bit of punk stuff and things like that he was um you know he's very kind of like counterculture kind of guy right doesn't like um you know the status quo and and kind of i think also that's where i get my kind of you know element of like the, the sort of nine to five doesn't really suit me and i think he kind of planted that seed that there's something else out there if you want to kind of chase it um and it just happened to be you know music although it could be any kind of any kind of artistic pursuit i suppose but um yeah so so but but to to your point about brighton it's there's a kind of really interesting mix of like um it's obviously by the seaside you know it attracts a lot of people who kind of want the escape from london it's a very gay place very liberal place so when you kind of mix all of that up it sort of lends itself very well to kind of creative creative expressive people um and then i guess that becomes a sort of self you know fulfilling cycle because people like it because it's creative and then you know creative people move here and that's why more people like it and then it produces kind of you know record labels and artists and uh actors and all these kind of people and so it just becomes this sort of cycle um so yeah i mean it's pretty crazy really i, I tried to make a list once of all the people who uh, i could think of that had all come from brighton like either you know kind of djs electronic acts labels and it's like you know bonobo true thoughts like skin ninja tune um you know fat boy slim friction yeah. crafty cuts high ranking proc and fitch 
you know, um, Seamus uh, Haji, I think, is lived down here for a long time. The Freemasons are from here, Steve Mack. Um, so it's, yeah, there's like tons and tons of people. So they all kind of gravitate. They all kind of gravitate at some point, it seems like. My favourite, um, on, on a weird tangent, my favourite Seamus Hadji story was, um, <laughs> we were like, it's not really about him, but I suppose it is. We were flying back from Ibiza, me, my, my best mate. And, um, you know, that again, we're going back 15 years now when we were cutting that vocal house sound and everything that Seamus is obviously huge for. And we were flying back from Ibiza and my friend had um, a paper. We were both a little bit worse for wear, probably hadn't been to bed and all, you know, all the rest of it. And he was like, mate, Seamus Hadji's kicking off at uh, the council about his bins. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, mate, it's in the paper. And I was like, you are fucking winding me up. And I was like, no, nah, mate, no. Nah. And he like, showed me the copy of the Daily Mail or something. There's a big picture of like, Seamus Hadji next to his bins. And he was in some dispute with like Brighton Council about his bins or something. But anyway, I digress. I mean, so musically, like, take a couple of steps forward. Um, what can you remember the first bit of music that was that was yours? Do you know what I mean? Whether it was a bit a record or a CD or a tape or a mini disc or like you'd either saved up to get it or you'd asked for it as a present. But like, can you remember the first bit of music that was really kind of yours that you know you really felt you know was yours? Well, I sort of I I, I remember listening to the Top Forty on Sundays, and I would always try and record things off the Top Forty, and I would you know do the classics or try and stop it before anybody starts talking um and i remember asking my dad to give me if he could give me like blank tapes or tapes that he didn't want anymore so that i could record over them um and record other stuff onto them and at that time i, I kind of remember liking i didn't really know what kind of dance music was really but i kind of remember remember liking it um i hadn't had any sort of like epiphany at that point or any kind of you know um any sort of pivotal thing happened but i just remember hearing stuff and all the things that i liked at school um when i was about 11 12 13 and i would hear on the radio or i'd hear my friends playing or go to like school discos and stuff and the dj would play them you know and it, it was it was obviously all stuff that was in the charts because that's what you play if you're that kind of dj at a school disco or wedding wedding <laughs> right but yeah. but it was all stuff like you know entrance set you free and strike you sure do and jx son of a gun it was all kind of like i guess you'd describe it as kind of like euro dance it's almost like that european pop dance stuff of the time but obviously it was kind of, basically it was club music i didn't understand that at the time but that's what i liked and um i remember i had this sort of double tape player and there was um i've told this story before but do you remember do you remember where robson and jerome did had a, like a pop melody a short, they didn't they did a version of unchained melody and it basically it was essentially like a kind of ballad right yeah and it didn't really have any drums yeah on it it was essentially just almost like a reprise kind of mix right there was no like maybe it had some light percussion or something but it didn't have any drums and i remember recording that i don't know why i recorded that because i didn't really <laughs> like that record but maybe the tape just ran over or something anyway i had it on a on a tape and i remember there was another track called blurred which was um uh, a kind the of piano a, a man boot, thing the piano man thing. yeah yeah, yeah i loved and, uh, it now now funnily enough i'm that i loved that track years ago and i'm friends with him now on facebook that guy funnily enough the guy who wrote that but obviously it was basically it was a bootleg of of blurs boys and girls or whatever it's called right and he basically had taken that vocal or a cut of it and he had put this you know sort of m1 piano riff thing behind it and i remember 
I realized that the other track, the Unchained Melody thing, didn't have any beats on it. So I was able to kind of blend these two tracks together. And obviously it was completely out of time and probably out of key as well. But it was just this idea that like, oh, you know, you can kind of put these two things together and create something new. And so that was kind of my first, you know, that was my first kind of mess around with music, I suppose. And um, and then after that, I ended up kind of borrowing a tape from somebody um, at school or Dreamscape 11 tape from a tape pack. You know, one of my friends just lent it to me. And that was the tape that kind of like sparked it for me. And then I started to understand that there was this whole culture around you know dance music and at that time it was like raves and going out to these so things not, and i'm not really aware of, of dreamscape i obviously know like vibe light and bonkers and all that kind of stuff so what was was that was that kind of playing hardcore was that kind of a cox thing was it a drum and bass thing was it what sort of stuff was on that, that tape pack yeah it was it was happy hardcore basically right. i mean it was it was kind of at that time when like hixie and Dougal and stuff like that yeah it, in actual fact what i would say is the time that when I got into it, Dream, that Dreamscape 11, which was the event that the tape pack uh, that the tape was from, um, at that time it was kind of what was described as hardcore jungle, really, okay. because it was like this kind of right in the middle, straddling you know hardcore and jungle. It was kind of you know they were using a lot of breaks and a lot of big sub basses, and there yeah. wasn't but there but there was these kind of cheesier elements there was these kind of vocals and you know kind of plinky pianos and stabs and the kind of elements that you would go on to describe a few you know a couple of years later as being very like happy hardcore um but at the time it was like you know you had the kind of heaviness of jungle and the breaks and all of that kind of stuff but mixed with these sort of more uplifting elements and so that's the kind of stuff that lsd and i mean lsd stuff was a bit more that jungle and size stuff was a bit happier but they were on the, the flip side of the same tape so i basically had this tape and i just listened to it for weeks and weeks and weeks just over and over and over and i used to fall asleep listening to it on my headphones and and that was the kind of, and since that moment i've basically just been hooked i've been fascinated by you know what was this thing that people were going to and um and you know and then of course you start going out to record shops in brighton and start picking up flyers and i was too young to go to the events at that point but there was a lot of there was kind of illegal parties going on and as soon as we i sort of turned 16 i was going out to stuff i remember going to the mansion house which which used to be stern's before that which is a very famous venue it's a very one of the most kind of influential venues for that kind of music in the sort of late 80s and early 90s and i never went when it was called stern's because i was too young but it was called the mansion house after that and it was pretty much a continuation um but that was you know a major kind of um venue it was you know as important as many of the venues in london or the venues in leeds or manchester each kind of area had their own yeah um and so yeah and so that was kind of that was kind of my introduction into club culture and then basically after that i was going out to um kind of illegal parties that are around brighton like there's like kind of fields and stuff you know little farm places and everything that you know 10 20 30 minutes away we would go to those we'd go to hastings pier which was another you know big venue for and it was all kind of it was getting into like kind of happy hardcore at that time um and then but then after that i started getting right into drum and bass i met some friends got into drum and bass and then we started going to a lot of raves for that as well so it was kind of a progression of like you know kind of the rave stuff then kind of happy hardcore for a bit while i was at school and then when i left school it was kind of drum and bass and it sort of went from there it's, it seems i mean we touched on it a lot i mean it seems a similar kind of 
gateway for a lot of people our kind of age like you know the northern thing for me was the sort of the bonkers tapes and cds which again was probably straight up happy hardcore like hixie dougal um yeah you know that kind of stuff um darren's you know darren styles force and styles and that kind of stuff and then that kind of i guess probably led on in or on to the charty stuff that you were talking about jx which hilariously i've just sampled there's nothing i won't do um but like then you know then led potentially led into kind of from the northern people you know again like listen to the um nadia lucy pod that i did recently like it, for a lot of northern people i think we went like trance where like some where you guys went a bit more drum and bass and a bit kind of garagey we went sort of trance which seemed to make sense that euphoria and then everyone kind of seemed to go back into house music but right. i wanted to take you back to sort of probably around the time of this dreamscape tape um like were you aware that people like were you aware of djs prior to the dreamscape tape or were you like did did any, have you had you ever seen anyone dj had you ever seen anyone on decks like well can you remember the first time that you kind of realized that that was someone's job to make people dance and to mix music and to create a vibe <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think i necessarily realized that there were club djs um in that way my my maybe my kind of my earliest sort of inkling would have been like I say, seeing DJs at like a youth club disco or school disco kind of just playing music, kind of playing chart music. Um, it's, it's amazing really, because when you, you know, when you, if you have, if you have no idea that there's kind of a dance culture and a club culture, um, you just go out to nightclubs and you hear these records, right. And the sort of normal person that works, let's say in an office and doesn't know anything about, you know, DJing or producing or anything, they just assume that these records get signed and they just go on the radio and that's how they hear them. But often, especially with club tunes, there's this high entire journey that that record has been on before it's actually got there. So these records actually become hits in a club first and they kind of grow organically and then they get picked up and maybe, maybe a bigger label signs it or whatever, and then pushes it to radio. And so it's kind of been on this whole journey, which is the problem of the pandemic, right? (laughs) That's why right. that's, right. that's that's the problem where we're all sat at the moment. And so many of the tracks that like we're you know that I mentioned that you know the kind of like entrance and things like that yeah. they were probably all getting played by DJs and then they got picked up and put onto radio and of course my only exposure to it at that point was hearing it on the radio. So then you start to trace back what the journey of these records actually is and kind of what you know how people break records and and obviously that's a DJ's job and that was the way it was done back you know years ago it was like you would have a dj or a bunch of djs would play this record and they play it and play it and play it and the more influential they were they would go a long way to actually breaking that record and it you know going overground or reaching a new level of success so i never knew that there was you know kind of club djs or that there was this entire kind of subculture basically um counterculture around it it was really kind of borrowing that tape that kind of got me into because because on the tape you can hear people you can hear the crowd there's an, an MC they're interacting with the crowd and so you get in the sense of this atmosphere and obviously there was no yeah. youtube or anything like that you couldn't go and look at the videos online yeah. you know you could get videos of the events but they weren't that you know they weren't as popular as the tape packs obviously um and so it all really just sprang from that tape that tape was kind of the 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 sort of you know the uh the the kind of seed of it all because 
once you discover that, then you discover there's all this, all these events going on. There's all these other DJs. What music are they playing? Then there's all the stuff around the records, the labels. That's a whole thing as well. So, some people had older brothers and sisters that would go to the parties, and so they would tell yeah. the younger brothers and sisters the people I'd go to school with, and that's how they'd get passed on. And yeah. then another way was like you know that those tape packs were like. It was basically a form of advertising yeah. and kind of people went to the following events because they were like gutted. They'd missed that one based on the tape packs and so on and so forth. So it was really clever and it's incredible, really, the way these things used to spread when you consider that there wasn't any way of marketing it directly, really, um, in terms of, you know, uh, doing social media and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it, it all it all came from that tape. It all we- came from that tape. Were you always, I mean, like, you, obviously what you said there, like, sparks so many memories for me as well. But you, were you always quite intrigued with the technical side of DJing or did that come later? Like when you went to see, obviously, you know, when you're on the tapes, were you, were you understanding that the records were getting mixed? When you first went to these, these raves and parties when you were 16, were you watching the DJs or were you just more part of the whole scene and enjoying the vibe on the dance floor? I was much more a fan at the beginning um, of just of just music in yeah. general of just the music and i i didn't really think about it too deeply um i wanted to go out to events um and sort of have experiences with like-minded people um and kind of meet friends that were into the same thing and enjoyed basically going out and trekking to raves and getting on the train and going to places and then coming back at you know six seven in the morning and doing all that stuff that's essentially what i was interested in at that time I think it's a natural progression that if you if you feel it's something that you vibe with and it's something you've got an affinity with, then the next progression is, you know, for me, it was I want to start playing that music. And then it's once you're kind of playing the music and starting to understand how things fit together, then the next step is I want to make my own music. And then it's kind of a progression from there. So going um, back to the just playing the music, like going back to the playing the music, do you mean getting decks and stuff? Do you mean buying vinyls and getting decks? So talk yeah. me, talk me through that. So how old were you at that point? What what setup did you get? Like yeah, how did you afford it? All that kind of story. I can't remember what I had, but it was just a pair of really terrible belt drives, um, and some you know just basic two channel mixer. And I didn't even at the beginning. I wasn't even buying. Um, I wasn't even buying like the records that that they were playing. It was more just I was just going to there was a used to be a place called Jubilee Shopping Hall in Brighton. And it was kind of like almost like a bric-a-bracky bizarre sort of place. And they had different vendors in there and all, all that. But there was a, uh, a record shop in there. And I can't even remember if it sold new records or not. But anyway, they basically had all these like kind of bargain bins and you just go through them and you would just try and find stuff that you are maybe had an inkling might be close to what you wanted um and there was a thing uh dj sparks you know how to love me it was like a sample of an old record and i was like so i bought that and you know they, these these were like it was like 50p for a record or something so you'd basically just pick up like you know five ten whatever you had the money for um and you you know you'd, then you'd just try and put them together um but yeah i wasn't buying any you know my knowledge was very kind of like you know rudimentary at that point i didn't really know i still didn't know loads about the label side and the de- yeah, and the and the putting out music side and what tunes were what and what they were called and all this kind of stuff um that kind of came a little bit afterwards but but yeah it was more just a case of 
kind of getting some getting some basic decks and then just trying to mix and were you were you keen to to get gigs or did was your brain already thinking about how do i learn to to make this music or am i getting ahead of you here like were you keen to get gigs at this point well i was about probably about 15 at this wow. point but but what because <laughs> basically when because when i borrowed this tape i was when i borrowed the tape i was 12 wow so that was, so it's 1994. That event that I'm talking about was 1994, and it was the first of July, uh, 1994. The pinch and the punch. The event was called, and my friend. And so the tape pack probably came out in August, yeah. And we would have gone back to school probably in September of that year. So I probably borrowed it at some point between in the last quarter of 1994. Okay, so you know. By the time I kind of had had it for a few weeks, five, six weeks, whatever it was, I, I would have been approaching my 13th birthday. So at that point, obviously, I was too young, really. I got some decks maybe like, you know, a year after that, six months okay. after that, whatever it was. But before that point, all you're doing is kind of going around to your friends' houses. You're listening to these tapes and you're all kind of tr- showing each other this bit that you like. And so you're kind of doing that. But I was going out to these events and stuff, the illegal things, when I was about 15 um obviously not all of them because certain things just you know i don't i was i looked young you know so there was no way i was able to get into a lot of stuff but i remember going to um the to go into tasmania and hastings pier at the age of about 16 um and it was just like notoriously easy to get into these things you know (laughs) um but most but it was kind of you know obviously it there was everything was very slack with id and it was easy to get fake id and all that you know the good old days yeah, it's nowhere near as difficult as it is now. And they've got, you know, everywhere is cameraed up. And, you know, there's, the, I mean, even, I don't even think back then you had to have a, an SIA badge to be a doorman. No, no. So that, that didn't even exist. So, you know, there wasn't any of those kind of um, regulations around things. So it was a lot more kind of slack. Um, and obviously everybody was there to have a good time. There was barely any trouble. Obviously there was trouble at things, but it was, it was rare. Um, so when so, you're getting, when you're getting decks at that age, like, is that, unusual for kids of your age at that time in your year or were the other kids getting decks because i think back i mean we're a similar age and i think back and obviously i'm you know like i say other end of the country northern but at 94 95 all my mates wanted to have the liam gallagher hair they wanted the big max hands behind the back like everyone wanted a guitar everyone wanted to be in a band like i was into music in a house music i was buying vinyl but i mean i didn't have decks at this point but like coming back to you were you the only person you knew in brighton at, at, you know in your year that had decks or was that quite a common thing there was a few people in in my school that okay. were into it um and that had decks there was probably three or four people a couple of people had decks and they were like into hip-hop and like scratching and stuff yeah and people kind of had their little groups didn't they you had like the skaters group and they were into kind of like yeah they had all the skating stuff and they were you know that's what they were into and then you had another group that were into kind of you know playing football and they wanted all that stuff and they were doing all that and yeah i was i was one of a few people uh, i was probably one of maybe i would say like five or six people overall that, that had cool. decks um, in my year so so it was obvious even then that this was something that like not everybody was going to be into yeah. um so that's why when you kind of find people that are into it and you find other people that like the same things you sort of naturally gravitate towards them because you sort of realize there's not that many of you and it is you know I've, said, I've talked about this before and said that it's very countercultural. you know being into dance music 
um, is is almost like punk, really. It's like it's very kind of anti-establishment. It's very like the opposite of what an office job is. It's kind of late nights. It's like the nighttime economy. It's going out late. And, and don't we feel it now? Late. Like, aren't we Absolutely, feeling it? Now? Yeah. Aren't we feeling it now with a Tory government? <laughs> right. So this is what this is what I mean. There's so many parallels between this idea of kind of like expression and what punk was about and kind of being anti-establishment and sort of going against the grain and, you know, this music that kind of people see as being noisy and doesn't really serve any function. And so there's, there's definitely parallels there with, with the kind of punk movement and the, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, like acid Acid house, House. you know, which is why they brought in the criminal justice bill and all of that. So there's, there's all of those kind of similarities there. So I've always been attracted to it for those kind of reasons as well, because, and there's also like the the people you meet are also quite similar. You know, the people that you meet in the, having these experiences and going to these places or going to after parties or whatever, they're all, they've all got these similar kind of thread that runs through them. They're all, they've all got the same kind of characteristics and the same traits. And many of those traits are countercultural kind of, you know, creative, um, rebellious sort of punk-esque traits. They just happen to like dance music. You know, you also get it with bands and things like that. So I've always found that really interesting. Do you, do you, can you sort of remember, like, when you, did you, I mean, did you go through that period when you were getting first gigs? Like, what were you playing at the time? Where, where were the gigs at? Were they in clubs? Were they in parties? Were they a little, like, not illegal things, but, you know, were they a little kind of organised mates things? Or were you, were you handing out stuff in bars and clubs trying to get gigs? Or did it not really work like that for you? Well, my first, the first ever things I would, was doing was, um, when I was about 15 and I was still at school, I was I would try to put on these like basically little like 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 events. You know, I yeah. try to like put on promotions. So it would be like hire out a church hall, because yes. um, you know, hire out a church hall, uh, try and get a little sound system together like a PA hire, and then you know bring your decks or get someone to you know with Technics to kind of lend you the Technics. And I used to do tickets. So I had a friend who um uh, he had like a computer and he was like you know come round used word art to design some tickets. Um, and kind of like put on this party and try and sell the tickets to your friends and, you know, do these little events and stuff like that. Um, that was kind of my first, you know, the first sort of gigs that I would have done or going to, to do other things, other parties that other yeah. people had where they would have kind of people come and DJ who were their friends. And there was only, again, it was only a few people. There was only like five or six or seven people that were kind of capable of doing it at that age because they had the music and stuff. Yeah. Um, at this point, I'm getting towards kind of being 16 and then I was like, you know, leaving school, I kind of went to work for a while, you know, I had a proper job for a bit. Um, but I was still doing music on the side. By this time, I'd met a couple of friends uh, in a record shop in Brighton who, you know, I've become really good friends with them and still am good friends to this day. And that we kind of were all into the same things. And so we kind of just would hang out, go to parties, put events on, uh, make mixtapes, you know, all that kind of stuff. So... I was kind of doing it every day in some capacity, whether it was, you know, buying records, hanging out with friends who are into the same thing, going to to raves, traveling on the train and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. So at that point, it was kind of, you know, I wasn't too worried about wasn't too worried about doing gigs initially, but I was so young that it was more about just just playing the music and then everything else kind of progressed naturally, really. So what, so what is that next progression then? So, so let's take you towards like that 19, 20, 21 period 
Um, you said you were kind of working. Um, what were the next stages in that progression? Did it did it mean more gigs, which allowed you to stop working, or did it did you want to get into production? Or what? Yeah, what was that next? Those next few stepping stones. Well, I mean, at the age of sixteen, I, I was kind of you know I went out to work. I had a job. I was working in a hotel. I was working on the reception desk in a hotel. So I was doing mixed shifts. Um, so some more early mornings, some were late nights. And so it was kind of good in a way because it gave me flexibility to sort of do other things. So if I wanted to go out or I had a gig, I didn't have to be at work at seven the next morning. Sometimes I did, but not always. I could do kind of I could do things kind of late um, and get up late and, you know, do the late shift at work or whatever. And that kind of worked for a while and I was kind of OK doing it. And, um, you know, but I was still doing we were still doing all the other stuff. We were still kind of, you know, de- we, we were DJ. I mean, I was DJing. Um, a few places when I was 17 kind of just little parties and house parties and stuff like that um, and then I got on then I kind of got to about 18 I got a resident I was basically and then at this point I was playing garage by this point I'd started playing garage um, and uh, a friend of mine who's kind of, has kind of been a mentor to me over the years Mick Fuller who owned that record shop called uh, Urban Records that I used to shop in all the time um, he gave he gave me my first residency. He had a club night down here called New Garage Central, which was pretty major club night at the time. And um, uh, I was resident for him there. And this was kind of around. This was like 2000 now, nine, sort of end of 1999, 2000. I did that for probably about 18 months, I think. And um, yeah, and at that point, I was going to music college to study music, Northbrook okay. in Worthing. Um, but I was also kind of like still going out to drum and bass parties with these friends still going to raves going to london at this point we'd kind of acquired like a small studio between us so what we would do is my we i had a particular friend and his you know we've all got this like in the group that we've got there's always one friend that's like the parents are the really really cool parents and they let you make loads of noise at their house and you can stay over and they're just like super cool and they just let him do whatever he wants and so it means these friends come round and you can make noise there and everyone leaves their records there because everyone does the mixes there and all that kind of stuff. Well, my friend Mark, he was that friend. So we had like a small studio set up in his house. And because obviously at that time, none of us had a bunch, you know, a whole bunch of money. We would just kind of chip in and get small things. So whether it was like a little effects unit or a sampler or something, and we'd kind of pitch in our money and, you know, get all this stuff. And um, And then so that was our very early sort of embryonic stages of trying to produce and trying to make make music i mean we're all useless at that point but it was kind of like that was the first foray into doing it um and they were djing and doing things i did a few events down here i did i did i did an event at what was the zap which became you know digital after that is now called the arches but or the arch sorry but um yeah i did an event there i did an event at the concord too which is a famous venue um and then the and then the escape which is now patterns um so I'd kind of done little and these were all drum and bass events as well. So I'd kind of done drum and bass parties. But, you know, just slightly after that, I was playing garage. So, um, yeah, I've kind of really dotted through it all. You know, so I've got it's nice because I've got a fairly good kind of rounded sort of understanding of like this, like kind of hardcore and jungle and drum and bass and garage. And it's all kind of part of my musical sort of um, journey, really. So, you know, it's, it's been good. Um, and I've obviously met lots and lots of people along the way but yeah so that was kind of where i was at when i was like by this you know by the time by the 2000 I, I was, yeah 
yeah that was 2000 so i would have been 18 at that point and then and then it was just a couple more years of that really just kind of djing and there was like a small pirate radio station down here at the time so i used to play on that um and and that was really it and then it kind of garage sort of died around like 2002 really 2002 2003 it all started to kind of dry up all started getting a little bit dark and you know the kind of grime thing was happening it was kind of early dubstep thing ended up happening at that point um a couple of years after that so and then after that i moved to london because i kind of felt like my life wasn't really going anywhere in brighton um a lot of my friends had moved away um and they'd all started to kind of do different things. And, you know, as, as happens when you get start to get a bit older, um, I had three or four really good friends and they all moved out of Brighton, you know, either to work or they were with their partners. And they'd kind of, you know, even if it was 10, 15 minutes down the road, they'd kind of moved out of town. So I decided that I should probably move as well. And I made the decision that I was going to move out of Brighton and kind of, you know, basically pursue music, but kind of do it somewhere else. I just felt like a kind of refresh was needed, you know. And what was the um, plan? So, what was the plan moving to London? Big, big city, bright lights. What was the? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I did it. Now, really, it's pretty amazing because I basically left with I worked two jobs for a little while to have, you know, so I had some money and stuff, and then I moved and I kind of rented this B and B for like a week, and that was it. <laughs> that was all I did. I didn't have anywhere to go after that, but I kind of just sort of kept falling into these things like you know i got kind of got a job and it was a live-in job and again it was kind of the hotel the hospitality industry yeah it kind of served me well having that experience because it meant that i could go and get a job somewhere and kind of do live in for a bit and yeah and so then i kind of moved you know then i ended up i ended up living actually in hertfordshire but like i ended up living in hemel hempstead for a for a bit in st albans for a bit in harpenden for a bit so it wasn't kind of London in the end, but that was the original plan. And what was, but... and what was going on? Like, so around this time when you're moving around, are you still gigging? Are you still buying music? At this point, are you tinkering around with production software? Like, or is it, or is it on pause a little bit now? Or what's kind of going on um, around yeah, this? Yeah, I'm still doing stuff, but it's like, you know, the production's not very good at this point. So kind of like 2003, 2004 um i'm still djing i've got loads of records i'm still buying bits here and there i was working in a record shop for a little bit there was a record shop called manic vinyl in st albans um and i kind of became friends with those guys and what Um, sort of music are you into at this point so we're talking very early thousands like 2003 2004 what sort of stuff are you still garage still garage garage. yeah i mean the hat i was the thing is when i was playing in at new garage central in brighton the record shop that i used to shop in that uh, that was run by mick fuller that shop was really a house shop. They sold garage in there, but it was a it was a house music shop. And so when I would be in there, I'd be hearing all this other stuff. And I was kind of into the USC, you know, stuff anyway, the US house stuff, uh, yeah. Masters at Work, Todd Edwards, all that kind of jazz. Yeah. And um and also there was obviously a, a massive a massive thing that I'd missed in ninety four, ninety five, ninety six, which was all of the UK kind of you know what was what you might call like garage house um or the kind of early uk garage really before it became kind of two-step um before yeah. it became that you know it was before it became mj cole yeah so it would have <laughs> been people like grant nelson yeah and nice and ripe and all those kind of records yeah so i kind of was going back and buying that stuff as well and getting exposed to all this stuff that i'd missed and all the american producers and there was obviously a lot of crossover 
um, in what was happening. And then around kind of 97, 98, your whole speed garage thing happens. And then it starts to turn into kind of like sort of what you would consider to be kind of London yeah. pirate radio UK style garage, garage yeah. um, which was kind of very bumpy, you know, like cut ups four to the floor kind of had this very UK flavor to it. You know, the kind of stuff that like people like MJ Cole, Dem two and all those guys were doing. And then yeah. after that, obviously it went into two step and went commercial and all the rest of it. So I was still playing garage was still being made, but it was just very few and far between. There was, you know, in terms of the really good stuff, there was a lot of like, Sublo and grime and eight bar and all this kind of stuff um there was a few people still doing good things but so it was kind of you know mj cole was still putting out some stuff around then um and there was a few other people it's kind of like a new what they called new school garage for a while it was kind of like you know will phillips duncan powell um sunship was kind of around doing stuff but it was like it was it was all a bit kind of thin on the ground. These you know these new guys, me included, because I was making some of that stuff, weren't really up to scratch with what the kind of legends were doing. And so we were all kind of like trying to create this little scene um, and create this little movement and to keep Garage going. But a lot of the a lot of the the producers weren't really at the stage of their development for it to really take off. Um, for example, Huxley, who who makes make music now as Huxley was making garage then under another name, uh, tourist, you know, who, um, is, you know, like signs disclosures label and all of this won a Grammy for working with Sam Smith. He was making garage then around that time. So we were all kind of friends in the same sort of scene. So we were sort of bubbling along trying to do that. Um, and it never really went anywhere, but I guess that was the sort of, you know, it was all experience, right? You were, we were kind of all making records and that yeah. was kind of, you know, it would all lead us, you know, the ones that were going to go somewhere, it was going to lead us eventually to that place. So that was kind of around 2005. Um, but yeah, I was still doing the odd gig here and there. I remember playing at Ministry, um, doing the second room, I think, for someone, for some promotion at, at that time and doing a few other local things around Hertfordshire and, um, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was never... I, you know I, w I was doing it in my mind i was doing it seriously but i wasn't really earning any money from it you know i wasn't making a living from it i had an another job and stuff like that so it was kind of always just on the side it wasn't really until about 2000 and i want to say maybe eight or nine that i kind of got a job in in by this time i'd moved back to brighton and i got a job playing commercial clubs around okay. here and so it was, i would still play how dance music but it was all kind of like commercial versions, Freemasons mixes and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Wide boys. Um, yeah, wide <laughs> boys, exactly. Um, and, and, uh, and that allowed me basically to have the freedom to do what I wanted five days a week. Cool. So I only that was did that two days a week. So that was the thing that kind of, which is the same for a lot of guys, the thing that set you free was the cash machine, which was DJing on an evening, which gave you your days back. Right. And, and did you have, did you, did you have a plan? Like, were you like, this is what's going to happen. I am going to start producing. I'm going to set up, you know, a sample. You know, at this point, did you have a plan? Or were you just like, great, I'm DJing in an evening. I start pottering around. Like, what was the sort of, like, thought process at this point? Well, around 2006, um, a friend of mine, a uh, mutual friend, uh, a guy called Bacon, um, that, that was his DJ name. He was kind of on the circuit in London playing Garage. And we became good friends because we lived quite close. And um, and we he used to come pick me up, take me out. We'd go to ministry back to 95. 
we would go to all these events he'd be he'd be djing all over the place um and he was kind of like the guy that sort of connected everybody else right in this kind of new garage scene that was going on um and so he was djing all over the place west end and all around london etc and we would hang out all the time and he was good friends with matt jam lamont and that's how i and that's how i ended up hooking up and working with matt jam lamont because he gave a cd of my rec of my music to matt um and this was kind of around yeah 2006 very kind of early garage stuff that i was doing well matt had a show on kiss at the time and he used to play on kiss every single week and matt played about six or seven of my tracks in one show that week and um and so after that matt kind of got in contact and said look i've just played loads and loads of your stuff on on the radio on my kiss show and then he kind of was supporting stuff after that um pretty regularly so he was saying to me look what are you doing musically like do you want to work together and do some stuff um you know i don't live too far away and maybe you know there wasn't really a plan as such but it was like let's just get together and see what happens so i matt had a studio in his loft at that time and um i would go around there like pretty much every week um and just work we would just work on stuff so we, we were doing that for a while um and again it was all very much like things were constantly changing in the music business it was like downloads were around but then they weren't around and kind of you know streaming wasn't really a thing yet social media wasn't even really myspace was along and it had its it had its kind of function but it was kind of limited really compared to what we've got now and you know facebook was kind of what 2007 but nobody was really using it yet and yeah uh, in the way that they are now and there was no instagram and all the rest of it so it was it was kind of just this in between almost dead space of like the old music industry and the kind of new one and the way you kind of reach people and how do you market it and what are the rules now around putting music out and what's the best practices and because years ago it was just you know you have a label or you sign it to a label they press records put it out and you make money um, and Matt was kind of obviously from that school, you know, he was from yeah. that place of like, he made good money in the music business. You know, they were around when things were good. And even his own label, he was doing well out of his own label, pressing his own records, like, even probably up to 2006 or something like that. So, so yeah, we were kind of in this in-between space, sort of figuring out what we were going to do. And we were kind of making a few things and putting some stuff out and, um, it was kind of a weird time because there wasn't loads going on and garage kind of hadn't really had this resurgence that it's had in the last couple of years since people like disclosure have come along and you know there's all these other kind of people dipping into it now and i think it's like a cycle isn't it for a while it was like a dirty word and people weren't really associating with it and now it's kind of back and proud and everyone's like yeah i love garage and it's i was always in Um, i was always in a garage (laughs) and now you've got people like aj tracy and conductor and all these people kind of you know so but obviously back then it was kind of this sort of weird sort of dead space as i say so we were kind of you know just making stuff and um and kind of seeing where it was going to go and and um a not long after that i kind of moved back to brighton but me and matt sort of decided that well we'll still work together it doesn't have to mean that we won't work together and so what i actually did for a while before i had a studio in brighton which i eventually ended up getting not this place but a place like you know i had that i had 10 odd years ago um I ended up moving back to Brighton and then I would still come up and work with Matt during the week. So the Monday to Friday, I would basically live at Matt's. So I'd nice. essentially stay in his spare room. Yeah. I'd come back on the Thursday or the Friday and then to I would go and gigs. DJ Friday and Saturday night and then have Sunday and go back Monday. And I kind of just did that for a while. 
Um, and we were putting out stuff. We were putting out records, you know, running a, like a, a label at the time. Um, I had a label called Solo Tracks, which was kind of just like a spin-off of his label, Solo. Um, yeah, and we were kind of doing that. And, you know, Matt was kind of... It was always difficult because the, the, the longer the, the time went on, um, the more it kind of became apparent that because Garage wasn't really on the up um, and Matt is such a big name in that scene, yeah. if you make records with him... It's, it's not his fault because he doesn't intend it to be that way. But there's always this natural inclination for people to just, they just see one person. So yeah. if I make tracks with Matt, because Matt is the bigger name, people just go, oh, this is a Matt Jam Lamont record. Yeah. It's almost like too much information for them to remember two people made it. Yeah. So you kind of just remember the bigger artist. I think it happens a lot when people collaborate. You know, so Matt would always be having to say to people, well, there's, it's me and Scott. You know, it's, there's two of us that made it. But people don't, you know, so no matter how you kind of, how much he tried to, to correct that, people just kind of naturally, you know, went that way. So I think when, you know, Matt was always busy with gigs and he was always busy doing stuff of his own accord. And I never kind of um, had a piece of that, really. So it just sort of made sense after a while, even though we still did the odd thing together. We still did remixes and we still did stuff together on and off when there was good opportunities there. But I kind of decided around that time, maybe 2011, that I had to kind of just do my own thing. And that's where the Scott Diaz name basically kind of started. And I, you know, decided to do a label called Connected. And I was putting out this kind of funkier stuff because um, I was very much into that kind of American sort of Chicago y West House. Is that where the, is that where the Diaz came from? Like, was that an influence from that kind of like scene and that sound and those, those yeah. artists? And I wanted something that sounded more global because my yeah. real surname's Harvey yeah. and it just didn't really roll, you know, it didn't really have the kind of resonance. So I kind of looked at it and thought, well, all of, all of the kind of big DJs that you think of, Romero, Sanchez, Vega, they all kind of have these Latin surnames. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of thought, well, what's one that I can take that hasn't been used already? And Diaz was one that I thought wasn't too prominent. Nice. So that's where it came from. And, you know, and I started to have some success with it. And so it, it basically just stuck. And that's uh, yeah, and that's where that came from. Did did you learn? I've got I've got a couple of questions that, that come from that. First of all, I'm going to ask you, musically wise, like like you know, obviously I can see the keyboard in the background. You you know, I know you're a really talented producer. Did you were you learning any instruments at an early age? Did you have any like where did your musical theory come from? Where did your sort of musical knowledge come from? Well, I, I took piano lessons when I was 21. Okay, um, which was pretty late. Um, I wish I'd, you know, started learning much earlier because many of the people that I look up to have been playing all their lives, basically. And I don't do think it gives you a very different level of understanding, you know, that that consummate sort of level of being, you know, having played since you were four or five or six years old yeah. is a different level to when you start playing as an adult. Um, but yeah, I took, I took some lessons when I was 21. I did that for a while. Um, and then everything else I've kind of just basically picked up along the way. So, you know, there was once a time when I couldn't identify what key something was in, what key a, a, a record was in or a vocal was in or, or what, you know, how to how to do a C minor scale or whatever. Um, and I've just picked all that stuff up over the years. Um, and I've known that stuff for, for a long while now, you know, because obviously I had those first lessons when I was like 21, what, 17 years ago. So, um yeah, yeah no, it makes yeah. it makes sense if you're in the studio every day that stuff comes it was just it was just a question really and and the second one was 
on a similar similar note, no pun intended, on a similar note, but on the other side of things, was did you really learn a lot from that time with with Matt about? And you've you've mentioned it a couple of times previously about the getting things signed, how labels work, how deals work, contracts. Did you pick up a lot of that knowledge running the solo tracks label? Did you pick up a lot of that stuff because Matt was talking about it? Is that a place where you learn, you know, to, to condense it, the business side of the industry? I think, I mean, poss- yeah, I think so. I think it's difficult to say for sure exactly what what was picked up in that in you know, when, when it comes to do with that specifically but uh, working with matt was useful because he had such a rounded experience of the music business anyway and because he'd had a lot of success um and he'd had things that that had gone well and that had been successful there's you know it's, there's definitely been useful information that's been passed on to me and also he's very well connected as you can imagine knows you know every so many people as as those people do have been around like 30 odd years doing it so um again i think it you know it was an interesting learning curve probably for both of us because it was a new time in the music business really um you know i i, I someone asked me the other day what's the most frustrating thing about like your your job or the music business and i'm like it it just doesn't stay still at the moment you know, just as soon as you think you're starting to learn about, right, this is how this thing works. This is how I market this, this track. This is how we do video. This is how we, you know, reach people. Um, and so all that stuff, it new. changes. Yeah. It's changing, change. This is the platform for it's this. Different now. It's changed it's different. now. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's just constant. Whereas I feel like 30 years ago, nothing was changing, you know, and, and obviously that's why things kind of went spectacularly downhill for a bit for a lot of the labels because they basically hadn't had to do anything different it was the same thing it was like sign a talented artist chuck a load of money at it the best songwriters producers hope that you get a hit you know the two albums that do amazingly well pay for the seven or eight that don't yeah um and you press vinyl up you market that way you know you send reaction sheets out you do your fan club you know you do concerts all of that kind of thing you have your 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 comps and your publishing and and there's a very well established way that you made money and there was plenty of money to be made. Yeah. And now it's like just constantly changing. It's like, oh, no, we're doing this now. This is the platform now. And, you know, oh, no, it's not downloads anymore. It's streaming. Okay, right. But now there's this new streaming platform, right? You know, so it's so all this stuff that's going on and you're constantly having to adapt to it. And, and now there's a you... pandemic. <laughs> right. And now there's a and pandemic and there's no gigs. <laughs> to... And do we put music out? Do we not put music out? Do we put it out for Spotify? Do we? Yeah, like it's, it's constantly changing. Never mind the digital aspect of it that's the problem that you get when when you when you have a a system that's essentially devalued the music essentially to nothing right which really started with youtube spotify get a lot of grief for it um but basically spotify uh, sorry youtube were doing that before spotify came along they'd already reduced recorded music's value essentially to nothing by giving access to it on their platform for free um and so what when you've got a system like that and then everything is geared towards ah okay well now what you have to accept guys is that the music is your business card now and that is to get you gigs well that only functions well if there's a functioning economy and and ecosystem for gigs which obviously right now there isn't and so we're starting you know we're seeing the problems that 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 brings cool so um, we'll come back to that a little bit. We'll, we will come back to the pandemic thing a little bit, not too much because it's a pretty down down thing to talk about. But 
I mean, I was going to ask you, so obviously you, we're talking about maybe, I think 2010, 2011, you start in the Scott Diaz project. And I take it at that point you are becoming a little bit more housey. You are like moving away from the garage. I mean, still keeping elements of it, of course. And I know that, you know, you still produce all kinds of stuff. But at this point, are you thinking the Scott Diaz thing is going to be kind of US vocal house? Is that kind of your thought process? Yeah, I kind of wanted it to be what I was into at the time, which was kind of like Joey Youngman, you know, Jack in house, kind of Chicago-y elements, West Coast kind of elements. Didn't Joey Youngman go on to be Wolfgang Gartner? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. The owls went into Joey stuff. Was it, is that a just was Justin Long on the kind of on your radar at that time? I don't know. I don't know Justin Long actually. All right, okay. Um, interestingly, but yeah, it was. I mean, Joey Youngman was like the standout person in that in that yeah. scene by by a mile. Uh, his labels and his music were just next level. I mean, yeah. you can see why he kind of decided to stop doing it and become Wolfgang Gartner because. It was just the market, you know, he's so talented. Why the market for him was just way too small. Yeah. So, um, has he gone back to that? Do you know? Sorry to interrupt. I'm just he, interested. He, yeah, Have no, you kept is, tabs he on him? Making, he is making some stuff again, uh, purely for the love now because he's basically just gone off and been Wolfgang Gartner, done amazingly well, done albums yeah. with, you know, Deadma- all these Deadmausen, amazing, yeah. yeah. So he's done all that stuff. And I think now he's kind of coming back and doing a little bit of where his heart's at. Cool. Um, but yeah, it's being released on Guest House, which is a uh, American uh, sort of. I think it's a California-based label. Wow. Um, but he's done a couple of things on there which are fantastic, and they're head and shoulders above what everybody else is doing. Even though he hasn't done it for like ten years, he's just come back and <laughs> so straight at the top. But that's, <laughs> but that's you know. But it wasn't a surprise that he would do that because he's just amazing. But um, yeah. but yeah, there was a few other people: Brian Jones, Kinky Movement, um, Digital Villains, a few other people doing really kind of good stuff like that. Um, and I kind of was making that kind of stuff. It was sort of like cut up R and B vocals and kind of funky guitars and, um, you know, yeah, I was, I was really liking making it and I managed to do a lot of stuff in the end of 2011. I think I launched the label and within about six months, I'd probably put out about 11 or 12 wow. releases maybe. Cool. Um, I was just in a flow and I was really enjoying it and I kind of got the attention of track source and that's kind of where our relationship started. And ever since then, they've really backed me. And they really helped the label at the time. And Were you so gigging at this music at all at this point? Because like, I know that a lot of guys, you know, myself included, DOD, I can shout loads of people, who are, who are almost financing the music that they love by playing commercial gigs to get paid. Um, and obviously, there's no disrespect for that. That's, you know, that's the way of the, the industry for so many people. But were you starting? How long did it take to start to get gigs in this arena? Well, I wasn't doing any gigs playing that stuff at the time. Yeah. Um, I... I didn't start to get any gigs playing it until 2012. Okay. Um, so basically six months I was doing it, this, this new sort of Scott Diaz project at the time. And I was running the late money, my label connected, um, and just putting stuff out. And I was doing, I got a few things came in like, um, good, good guest mixes for like Grant Nelson's house call and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, but I, I was still I was still DJing in the commercial places at that time, so I was still doing the kind of like you know weekends were for that, and during yeah. the week I was making this music. Sure. Um, so I wasn't too concerned with with the gig side of it actually. Um, I was just wanting to kind of build up a catalogue of, of stuff as quickly as I could. Um, that was that was as solid as it could be. And then in 2012, I kind of decided that I was going to go to WMC for the first time. Okay. Um, and so everything was kind of geared towards that. 
And then when I went to WMC, I kind of did a bunch of gigs. I went for the full 10 days. And that was my first sort of experience of, you know, people really being into what I was doing. I'd had people kind of buying my music and, you know, reaching out and saying, I really like, your, you know, Scott Tonic stuff when I was doing the garage thing and all of that. Um, but this was the first time I kind of went abroad somewhere and had people actually come into the things I was playing at or reaching out to me before I got to Miami and saying, hey, are you playing at this party at the sunset? Are you doing yeah. this thing? Yeah. And um, yeah, meeting and obviously meeting a whole bunch of other people that were from mostly from America, but other places. So that was my first kind of foray into the sort of what it what what that world would be like. Um, and then after after Miami, I ended up going back to the US and spending eight months in California. Wow. Um, basically, the rest of 2012. I spent Whereabouts did you live, man? In San Jose. Nice. So, yeah, I did that. And I ended up doing a whole bunch of gigs. I played in L.A., you know, Phoenix, um, uh, San Jose, obviously, a bunch of times, San Francisco, um, like Oakland, uh, where else? Like Portland. California is just amazing. A few other places. Yeah. And so it was, you know, that was really good fun. And I had a great I had a great time doing that. But it kind of started to inform my decision making about what music I was going to make because I started to realize that the sound was like really, really niche. And there was almost like there was a glass ceiling. Basically I think me and, and Sonny Federa was making the same sound at the time. Actually. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so me and Sonny kind of like, I saw him do have, a gig at a very similar time and everything like, you know, must've played loads of Julian Wynn record. I just, yeah, I could totally remember that sound that he was playing. Yeah. And there was a few places that were doing it over here, like Birmingham. There was a few people playing it. Um, and Sonny was quite busy over here. Obviously, he was playing. I mean, Sonny was was kind of more well known than I was for that sound, I think. But yeah. during that time, it was me and in my opinion, it was me and Sonny were making the best stuff in that area because Joey Youngman had gone by now. Yeah. And um, it was like me and I think me and Sonny were basically making pretty much comparable stuff. So I was putting my, my stuff out myself. But Sonny was getting signed to good labels, like he was getting stuff on Sorted and Guest House and, you know, and he was kind of working the label thing, which was helping him with exposure and everything. And then after that, he got on Defected's radar and then kind of went off and did that. Um, But yeah, at the time, me and him were basically making the same sound. And I remember having discussions with him and we were saying... Was he still living in Australia at this point? Yes, but I think, yeah, but I think he, he kind of was coming over to the uk quite a bit okay um but yeah i think he was sitting in australia at the time yeah i'm pretty sure of it um i think he might have a uk passport actually i don't what? know that for That's sure crazy. Yeah. i, I want to say you know i mean for example husky uh, husky's got one okay um, husky's got you know and it's quite common obviously isn't it for australians to have yeah. english heritage because we used to send them all over there <laughs> so they're so they've so they've got English extended family, often grandparents or something like that. So I think Husky's got. I might, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think Husky's got an English grand grandparent, and so okay. he's got an English passport. So those a lot of those Aussie guys, you know, some of them can actually come and live over here because they've got British passports as well. Yeah. They've got dual nationality, and I, I think I may be wrong, but I think Sonny might be one of those. Okay, so cool. I guess if that is the case, then it would have made it easier for him just to be to do that. over here for six months, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, but, but in any case, you know, we were kind of making the same stuff, and we were having. Com- I remember having a conversation with him saying, "There's kind of, you know, there's kind of a glass ceiling. Like, there's a limit to how far that you can go with this. If you're making the sound, it doesn't matter if you're the top of that tree." you're really not going to go any further than doing certain parties or earning certain money or whatever. I mean, even, you know, Joey Youngman, he was, 
he, you know, as amazing as his stuff was, he was kind of scrambling to get paid a thousand dollars to do a remix, you know, and to do certain gigs. It was just like the money just wasn't there because this sound was. And we had to go, like, I remember when we once, you have to, you have to check out Justin Long when we finish this. But I mean, we were into that stuff, you know, that time. And I remember even having to find like gigs because we traveled to go and see Joey like in London because he just wasn't playing you know I think Youssef got into that sound a little bit as well so like you would right. s- but like it wasn't easy to see those guys in the UK I remember I remember us going down to London from from Carlisle at the time to go and check out like Joe Youngman and it's yeah it's, it, it wasn't easy to find them they weren't playing on the housier UK lineups if you know what I mean they weren't playing at right. Tall Trees or Shindig or whatever yeah it was all very niche and yeah. you know and because of the sound it wasn't it was very groovy and kind of like it was almost like it was basically music for producers in a way <laughs> it was like uh, you know it's like almost like kind of sausage fest music right yeah like other like the other people that listen to it like are, are all other producers and they're all like oh my god did you hear what Just you did geeks, there yeah. with that? like house geeks yeah and, yeah and that yeah and that 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 stuff is not gonna that is not gonna reach it's not you know, daytime radio the, one is it <laughs> yeah it's not going to reach you know the girls who, who want to get into their vocals and need those things to latch on to and yeah. it's just not it's just like underground cool music for people that are kind of super cool and you know and and um it's cool for like sitting by the poolside or whatever where you, where you can kind of play whatever you want but it was just never gonna it was never gonna go there so that's obviously why he made the decision to kind of move on and that, i think that's ultimately why Sonny made the decision that he did because i'm sure simon pulled him in and said look like your stuff's amazing but like this is too narrow drop me a massive start kind of kind vocal of in it <laughs> tweaking a little bit and going to go over here and then we can do something with it and he was like okay cool i can do that and you know and so ultimately that's the kind of decision i ended up making it's a sound i love but it's just it was just way too narrow for kind of what the things i was hoping to do yeah. um so i i kind of slowly started to change my sound again um, when I got back from America, <clears throat> having realized that at this point it was 2013 and kind of disclosure was happening and kind of garage influences were coming back. And, you know, there was a kind of really cool, um, bunch of labels, you know, Wolf music were putting out really good stuff. Um, lost my dog and all these labels were putting out kind of much more garage influence stuff. And so I thought, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm going to, you know, Huxley was sort of bursting on Probably, at that yeah. point doing all the stuff for you know losing suki and all those kind of labels hyper color um and i just thought yeah that was kind of a good place to to kind of be so i started do, again changing and doing some of that kind of stuff and is that so so moving on then like to kind of 15 16 um is that is that really where the sound stayed for the next like would you, would you say you're still kind of there now like in the sort of like the garage influenced vocal house or is that where what would you i know you make i know you do make a broad range of music now but is that sort of where you've been for the past five or six years and then dabbling out onto other bits here and there I pro- no it's probably changed again i mean you know i i sort of the problem i think not the problem but what happened what happened was that i spent 2013 living in back in brighton and then in 2014 i moved back to the states and i lived in the us for four years basically um but but i lived in philly this time i met i met a girl who's now my wife and um and she and essentially i got a working visa and i lined up a few gigs and stuff and i went over and lived in philly with her for four years and um so I, I guess it kind of changed again. You know, I was kind of, 
I guess what happened around that time is I started getting quite quite in, into doing sound design quite a bit as well. And at this point, I was kind of working for, you know, Loop Masters, Sample Magic, okay. Akai. I was, you know, a lot of the big companies in the space. I'd kind of made some contacts as I'd gone along. And I was working for these for these these companies basically on these different projects, and I kind of set up a label on Loop Masters, um, which they which they've now bought off me, and I've got a new project. But for a while, I was doing that, and um, and I, I guess because I kind of was removed from the whole gig thing a little bit, I was much less focused on being so narrow with a view to everything having to having be to, to having to get you a gig, yeah. Yeah, I kind of wanted to do it more for the fact of whatever pops out is going to pop out and that's what it's going to be. And so everything was kind of different. If you listen to the music I was putting out in 2014, 15, 16, 17, there's all kinds of stuff. I had my label grand plans, which is kind of deep jazzy stuff. But then I was releasing on Simmer Black, which is kind of very upfront stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Will's label. Yeah, I was kind of doing, you know, very soulful stuff, loads of keys, gospel-y kind of stuff. yeah it was kind of like all over the place really and i think that's probably what hasn't helped me you know when i talk to people who are in the music business or they're fans or you know they do these kind of things like have a blog or they you know run a podcast or whatever they kind of go oh i really like the fact that you're really diverse and that you do loads of stuff and that's great but it probably I couldn't tell you whether it's helped me or harmed me. Yeah, I read that. Probably, probably it, hasn't helped me. It was probably interesting because it was interesting because I read that from from the interview you did the other day. Like I tried not, I purposely didn't read it all because I wanted to have some questions, you know, to ask you that I didn't know the answers to. But I did yeah. read that because I think you put it up on Instagram, and it's definitely something I'm phenomenally guilty of. Um, is just making lots of different types of, of records, not quite as maybe diverse as you, but even the three records I'm working on at the minute slash have one to release. There's like a an, one with a big squelchy acid bass line and a, and a, and a sample from, from JX. There's like a really, you know, piano-y chilled thing. There's a real disco thing that I'm working on with a guy from America. There's like a real underground thing, which I'm working on with Ryan S. Like they're four like records that just don't, you couldn't, you'd really struggle to play them in the same set. Um, and I guess like... <sighs> You said, yeah, I don't know if it, if it helped or hindered me. It is really frustrating because on one hand, I think you potentially gain more fans because people find you via different mediums. They find you via different record labels, via different mixes. But then, you know, does it help you get booked? I don't know because you look at people like Skrillex. You look at people who just seem to dominate their sound and their lane. Um, but I guess the only thing, because it really made me think reading, your, reading that, that comment, and I guess the only thing that that really resonated with me or made me think was, but that's just, they're just the records I want to make. I don't think I could cope going into the studio every day going, I just have to make this type of record, load up the same sample bank, like get the same loop going. Like right. and now all respect to anybody who does that. It's certainly not a criticism, but I just wake up with this idea one day. I wake up with that idea another day. And I just, I feel like, I feel like I have to make, the, I have to get those records out of me. Um, interestingly, one thing that you said, which again really resonated with me there was, you know, suddenly you weren't making records to get gigs. You know, you weren't making records as your calling card. And obviously the pandemic's really, really highlighted that for me in the sense of like, I'm no longer, you know, I've had a residency at Digital for like 10 years or whatever. And like, I'm, I've spent the last four or five years making records to suit that dance floor as a, you know, right. As opposed to making records to get gigs, I've almost been making records that fit 
what I'm playing at that time. Um, and with that club being closed and not having those gigs and not having any gigs, I'm now, I feel like a, a whole level of different freedom to make anything because right. I'm, I'm not having to suit a gig or a dance floor or a crowd or a vibe. And in a weird way, I'm not even trying to get gigs because there's no gigs to, to fucking get. Um, right. So I have, I have felt a weird freedom. Like, has that affected what you've been doing over the last six months? Well, I think I was trying to do that before okay. anyway. But, but yeah, definitely in the, last, in the last six months, it just puts it into focus. And you just, you know, I think I've been, I, I've been guilty of making stuff that I haven't really enjoyed making. And, okay. um, and you sort of get, you get sort of pushed down a certain road, um, you know, because you kind of have a little bit of a, you have a foot in almost, you know, you have a sort of finger in every pie, right? But they're all kind of small, smaller pies because you're not, you know, you're not, you're not focusing your energy and your efforts on, like you say, dominating that space, um, which kind of puts you, you know, further ahead of other people and, and kind of people like, people don't think like they sort of like simplicity, you know? Um, and so, you know, you do have to kind of do the obvious thing, um, especially if you want you know everything's become so condensed now there's very very few gigs that are very very well paid gigs you know everything everybody wants to do the festivals because they're so well paid and they're such high profile and all the rest of it um and in order to do those kind of things for the most part you're basically having to make a certain type of music if you're not getting played on radio one you're probably not going to be doing those types of gigs. You know, you're not, maybe not getting played on radio one every week, but if you're not, if the music that you make is not getting to that level and you're not getting millions of streams on what you're doing, you know, so you're essentially having to make kind of commercial music um, within an underground scene. Obviously, you know, there's different levels to that. You yeah. can still get 10 million streams and it can still be a pretty underground record relatively compared to, you know, Rihanna or whatever else is out there. Um, but, I do think it's given people a lot more freedom and it's really what you should just be doing is making the music that you want to make and sort of figuring it out afterwards. But then I guess it's easier for me to say because I'm not so hung up on the idea of having to get loads and loads of gigs um, because I, I sort of want to make, you know, I want to make music that I'm proud of and I want stuff that's hopefully going to last a bit longer. I know I've done stuff that isn't going to last. I know yeah. I've made music. I, I think you know yourself as well. I think most of the time you know. I know if I've made something, I think this is going to resonate with people. It's going to really go somewhere. And then I know if I've made something that literally within two weeks is probably going to get forgotten about. And yeah. a few other it will pop up here and there. And that's a shame. You know, the, the, the problem is everyone now is under this pressure to just create, create, create 24-7. Um, to put things out 24 seven to, to put content out, to put out content about content. You know, it's not just, you can't just do a gig. You've got to tell people that you've got the gig. Video then you've got to do gigs, all the video, the gig, the gig yeah. and tell people that you did the gig and how well it went. It's not like, it's not enough to just go, I've got yeah. this gig and you can come and see me play. And I did this record and go and listen to it. And so, and I, you know, and that's fine. You have to adapt and you can't be a dinosaur about it, but it's more just the fact that it, there's a relentless kind of, pressure i guess to even if you've been really busy you may not do anything for five days and all you're seeing on that five days as you scroll is other people putting their things out <laughs> yeah. but they've been doing you know but then they're probably feeling the same as you 
when you put out something for you know three or four days in a row and they haven't got anything but yeah. of course you don't it, that's not your mentality I've, you said, it, I've about, said it I've, I've said it a few times on this podcast over the last six months one thing that I've weirdly really enjoyed about this six months is not having gig envy like being on you know scrolling through Instagram or whatever and so and so's getting off this plane to do this show so and so's just smashed this gig and like you know even if I've got what even if I've got decent gigs myself I'm just always going oh, I want to be doing what he's doing and like god it, it's not healthy like right and, yeah and, and and again you just said there I mean we're doing this this is content I'm going to put this out and then I'm going to watch someone else's whatever podcast interview vlog blog listen to a track a remix a photo shoot and you're like fuck I need to do something else and like shit I need to, yeah it's it's it, like you say man I've never really fully thought about it like that before but it is so relentless and what happens is then it dilutes the quality of the music as well, because instead of that's I mean, that's that's the reality. You can slice it any way you want. But the reality is the music suffers because instead of me waking up and just going, I'm just going straight in the studio and I'm going to spend three hours doing this. I basically spend most days I might spend depends how much I have to do, but you're spending at least between an hour and two hours figuring out what your social content for that day is going to be if you're going to post something right and then posting it to all the different platforms and adjusting it so that it works on each platform and the tagging's right and all the rest of it and then you're kind of following up with people you're kind of engaging with your community which is fine you're answering questions you're replying to people thank you thanks for the support you know which is great to do you've got to do that but that means it takes that that two hours out of your day or whatever and then when you have to finish so much stuff and release it you end up just going, you know what, instead of getting a full vocal on this or getting someone to sing, I'm just going to grab a, a vocal from here or just going to bootleg this thing. That record would have a lot more life and would go a lot further if you did get a singer on it. But if you commit to getting a singer on it, it means you can't put it out for another at least two or three or four weeks or whatever the case may be, right? Months. There isn't this kind of instant turnaround. Right, that can happen, yeah. So, so what it means is there's kind of less original music. The music is less original, um, because people are kind of, you know, having to just come up with, because I'm a nightmare because I, people always say to me, like, why don't you do any like tutorials of you in the studio and like making a track and stuff? And I'm like, okay, I'm open to doing it. But the problem is I'm an absolute nightmare to watch. Like, it's not going to be any fun for you to just <laughs> watch me mess around for hours with different ideas. Cause that's what I do. You'd have to cut it down or do something. I don't know how I would figure it out, but I will do a remix and I'll probably go through three or four versions of that remix before I settle on what I think is good enough. Yeah. Because for me, often the ma it's very rare that the magic happens like that. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know if that's the best idea you can get if you haven't compared it with anything else? Then you know which one it is that stands out. And even with remixes, I do that. And that's why remixes are hard because you can't charge ridiculous, ridiculous money for indie labels doing remixes. But at the same time, I usually spend a few days doing a remix on and off. So you're in this place where it's like yeah they're saying well i'll pay you and you can do it in a day it's like yeah but it, i'm not going to finish it in a day so you know you end up it ends up suffering the music normally because you don't have the time to let these things incubate in the way that you want and you don't have the time to actually go and you know what let's actually get someone in to do this like trumpet part or to do this or yeah. and actually add something to it or you know the money there for somebody to go like yeah the, the mix down's good but if we actually get it to go over here, then the mix down can be that 20% better or that 15% better, which just takes it to that next level and means it's going to last a lot longer. It's going to resonate more. It's going to translate better. 
And now you can't do that because the money isn't there really to do it. And it's everything's just becoming squashed and squashed and squashed. And you have to keep putting stuff out to ensure you've got the visibility. So it's sad in that respect because we should all be making half the amount of music that we're making, but just making it twice <laughs> We should be making good. half the amount of music and double the money. <laughs> it's what you say. Half, half the amount of music, making it double as good, you know, <laughs> twice as good and double the money, hopefully. Yeah. So that's the problem that you get. And, you know, Simon Dunmore from Defected talks about that. He's like, people should just, people just need to invest more in what they're doing in terms of time and, you know, yes, money if they are able to do it because these are the, you know, so many records are just getting left by the wayside. I mean, I shouldn't say it, but like listening to promos is just like the most draining thing for me because every record just sounds the same and it's just like, you know, but, it's, but, but, that's, but, that's, a, but that's an interesting like catch 22, isn't it? And I even saw, you know, Nathan C posting about it the other day about, you know, that A&R convenience store. I don't know if you saw that post and he was like, it was like a picture of a shop and it had A&R convenience and he put something like, you know, make it A&R, make it sound like Medusa and we'll sign it. And it, there is that, there is that catch 22 loop where everyone wants something different, but not every label want to take a chance on something different unless you've got a big name like Van Helden or whatever. So it's like, yeah. I totally agree, man. And I've been guilty of both. I've been guilty of literally loading up Beatport going right i want to make a record that sounds like it should be on defected like there's the last two records that were released by defected load them into logic reference tracks like here we go make it and then by the time you've made it like you said say let's say i want to get a guitar part let's say i want to get a vocal let's say i want to get a mix down let's say i go back and revise it let's say i test it out in the club then suddenly it's four months later five months later then suddenly it doesn't sound that fresh anymore it sounds it's like not the, track- the last two records anymore yeah <laughs> Yeah. And then you send it and they go, nah, it just doesn't sound interesting. Um, and then, and then, yeah, but then I've, I've also been guilty on the, the, the same tip on the other side where you go, right, let's make something totally fucking different. Let's go crazy here. Let's load up loads of different samples that no one's ever fucking used before. And I've sent that off to labels and they've just gone, what the fuck is this? Like, you expect right. us to release this? This doesn't sound like anything anyone's playing. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer, but as soon as you said that, I was just like, it can be really infuriating, especially for, for younger producers. Like, because um, I, I do think at least, at least most of the time, you and I probably get our, list, our records listened to by the people who we send them to, probably most of the time, hopefully. But there may be loads of younger guys and girls listening who don't even, who can't even, never mind get them listened to. They might not even know the email address. They might not even be able to get through the door. Um, and that is really frustrating, I think. Yeah, but I don't know if making generic sort of, you know, tech house, basically, which I'm sure I've made some. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but like it's, that's not, you know, again, again, the problem, the problem is that when you shoehorn everything down this path of this is what you have to do this is this is how you get gigs and this is the most viable scene right because this is the party scene where the most club events are and the most you know this is how you get people to come out therefore this is where there's the most gigs i mean i've put up posts about it before kind of making kind of like half sarcastic comments um about stuff like you know is everybody just making tech house because they understand that that's really the only viable like way to get gigs yeah. yeah because and that and, and that, because if you look at um and i and i even made a, another comment uh I asked a question like a year before I, I said that thing and i asked people to name um to name djs that are playing 50 60 plus gigs a year festivals and things like that 
um, which is, you know, seven, let's say 70 gigs a year, which I think is what I said at the time, which sounds like a lot, but it's only one gig a weekend plus like a few, like plus every other. It's one and a half gigs a week. It's not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Which obviously if you're playing in Ibiza in the summer and you're doing two nights at a weekend in the summer and you're also then doing festivals, you're easily going to go over 70 gigs a year. Right. Yeah. But I said, but name me all the DJs that there are that are doing that in the world that don't play tech house yeah how many of them are there forget all the defected type artists forget you know the, or, or edm forget the you know ultra musics and all of that who is playing house music that is not that and there's only a few that you can think of there's like Derek carter and there's people like that you know um but that that was kind of the point i sort of already knew the answer right i was just putting it out there as like here's something to think about and ruminate on and people and, and that 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 shows you it sort of lays bare how kind of difficult it is to get to be that level of DJ without succumbing to playing that stuff. Yeah. Because as soon as you start to play those bigger venues and those bigger places, you almost feel pressured to play, um, you know, that that big sound because it trans it, all the music's got to translate in a certain way. That's why yeah. it has to have the build ups in a certain way, the breakdowns in a certain way. Yeah. And there's just and it's just very, very restrictive. That's why everything ends up sounding the same because you have a very tight formula that it has to fit into. Whereas if you go to like a lot of, you know, other types of raves where people are playing like techno stuff. And I mean, some of this stuff's mixed down, not that great. Um, it doesn't have vocals. Some of the tracks don't even have breakdowns. They just run straight through, you know, and the DJs kind of find a way to play them. And that's kind of the skill in, in DJing rather than going, this has to be easy for a DJ to play. Otherwise they're not going to play it. The yeah. flip side to that was, if it was a great tune, the DJ would figure out a way 20 or 25 years ago to play it. And yeah. that was kind of the magic working that record in that everybody else was struggling to play, um, kind of separated you, you know, from, from the other DJs. So, but that's a very different scene. You know, there's a, there's a kind of much more commercial edge Ibiza kind of house. And then there's like the kind of Berlin techno Romanian yeah. minimal and all these other things that are very much kind of off on their own. So one of my, one of my good friends is an agent um, and he kind of books a lot of those types of artists plays in Romania, you know, they play all over Europe, all that kind of stuff. So it's very eye opening because there's a totally different way of doing things. Um, and so, you know, and, and it's not that it's not that, that, uh, that, that playing tech houses is bad or playing that sound is bad. There's some absolutely amazing records that are made in that way. And if that's what you're genuinely in love with and that's what you really like doing and you're into the music first and not the scene first, the music comes first, then the, then you find your community after you find your music is the way to do it, then that's all well and good. But that's why so many people, like you say, that are just getting started, they they find this very narrow place they have to fit into. And so that's why they end up kind of doing what they think is going to get them gigs. And they have to do it within a very narrow remit of, you've got to hit all these points otherwise it's not going to get played or picked up yeah. um but you really should just be doing what you want and then trying to find where it fits afterwards or hopefully creating your own thing i mean i just put out that record the way you feel like back uh when was it like mid-august end yeah. of august it was kind of a disco thing that I'd had like kind of bubbling for a while but i knew in my mind i was like no one's going to sign this i sent it to all the big labels and they were all just like no it's not for us straight away yeah. But I played it to people and they were like, these labels are crazy for turning this down. This is great. But it's almost one of those tunes that's like no one else is not. I haven't heard anything else like it for a, for a while. So it's either way out of date or 
slightly ahead of its time again. (laughs) Maybe in a year, people will be playing the kind of like 130 BPM disco grooves again. Um, But that was, uh, you know, I was trying to make something that was kind of on that, you know, yeah, sort of pumped up disco tip, um, you know, filtered and all of that. Um, But with an original vocal over the top. It's one of the things I'm making at the minute, actually. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I I basically ended up having to put that out myself and it's kind of just sort of. But it did well, right? I mean, I loved I loved the artwork and I saw your posts about it. It got really good support on TrackSource and it got really good DJ support. Yeah. This is the other thing, I guess. It's hard to know what really constitutes an achievement now. You know, mm. um, it, it is hard to know whether something is done well or not. Because other than the sort of, you know, I mean, I'm lucky. I'm, a, I'm kind of at a point now where pretty much everything I put out gets, gets featured or gets supported by the sites themselves, right? The, the download sites at least. Um, so what's the next level after that? You know, the next level is kind of, I don't know, getting, getting your Radio 1 plays or getting your central record of the week or getting your, you know, getting on the major playlists and getting, you know, getting above a million streams or whatever on a, on a record. Or I don't know what the markers are. I'm sure there are some, but it's... No, know, I think you make not... a really good point. It's not easy to quantify because in more normal times, it would be gigs. It would be, it would be the agent. It would be, it would be phone ringing and getting on planes or trains. That would be, for me, one of the things that would, 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 you know, would, would, would be success would be getting gigs. So without gigs, yeah, what is success? Is getting a Radio 1 play but getting, doing really badly on Beatport and TrackSource good? Is doing really, getting a number one on Beatport and TrackSource but getting 20,000 streams on Spotify good? Is getting a million streams on Spotify but not getting any radio support and no DJ? <laughs> I fucking don't know. It's right. abs- it's, it is really hard to, to even understand. Before, I mean, we could, we could talk. A, we could complain for ages, I feel like. B, we could chat about loads of other stuff in your career. Um, but before I start to do some of the things to wrap it up, it would be remiss of me to ask about night nightlife. Um, you're obviously wearing the T-shirt. Just yeah. Give me, a, give me a kind of, I mean, I'm aware of it myself, but give anyone listening who's not fully aware of it, um, you know, a history of where the idea came from, what it's supposed to be and what it delivers. So Nightlife Audio, essentially what it is now, it's recently launched about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. It's it's a boutique sound design label that we kind of run from here. Everything comes through here, um, although we work with other musicians and other people and kind of bring it all in and and um, and sort of curate it. But it's like a boutique sound design uh, company that's that specialises in making sounds and royalty free sounds and samples that are inspired by club culture. So again, it's kind of an extension of what my sort of musical background is and what my journey has been in sort of. You know, the fact that I came up on sampling, basically, I wasn't, you know, at the age of 14, 15, 16, getting into dance music, starting to kind of produce very, you know, amateurly at 17 or whatever. Uh, It was all about sampling. We obviously, you know, we had like a I think we had a base station um, for making sounds, but everything else was like in the sampler. That's kind of how you made the music that I sort of wanted to make at the time and that I was into. And um and so obviously it's so influential in the history of music and especially in the history of dance music. It's all about sampling and kind of borrowing from other places and, and building on that, that work essentially to create something new. So I thought, well, you know, last year uh, I didn't have a sample label anymore. That had been sold to Loop Masters and that, that had gone. And I was kind of looking for something new to do. And I kind of had this idea around doing something influenced by club culture. And so it kind of just took a while to figure out what the name would be and kind of what it would look like and what the story was really. And so um, I spoke to a friend of mine who, who works at Splice and 
I managed to secure distribution on Splice, which is quite quite difficult to do because they're quite picky at the stage they're at now as a company. They're they're pretty influential, and so it's not it's not always a foregone conclusion to get your stuff on there. But because I've got history uh, with this guy that I know, because he knows I've, the other projects I've been involved with, and we've th- both done stuff for Native Instruments and these other companies. So he kind of recommended me basically and said, it'd be good if you did something on the platform, but you, we want you to kind of tightly focus on, on dance music because they already have enough, um, enough, more than enough samples in other areas. So that was kind of where it came from really. And then ever since what, like a year, you know, about a year ago, last summer, <clears throat> I kind of started on sort of putting together the early, ideas of what it might be what the sounds would be and you know and kind of building it up but the the premise is you know there and we ideally want to go as ambitious as possible it's obviously going to take some time because we've got to build it up kind of slowly and reinvest back in and get you know sounds done and kind of build it up um in a in a way that's sort of meaningful and that actually delivers stuff that's really good because there are there are a lot of sounds out there it's it's very saturated but i think if you're doing stuff that's authentic and you've got kind of a unique angle then there's room for it um but it's just kind of doing that in a measured way so the idea is to kind of do some really great projects get you know disco sessions done and resample them and kind of do stuff that try and work in the way that dance producers actually work where they take a bit from here and a bit from here, but do it all for them in a royalty-free way or present it to them so they're not having to use stuff that is um, illegal for them to use, basically. And so we'll see how that develops, but that's the that's the plan with it. And the, the early signs are good, I think. It's, it seems to be promising. All the people I've spoken to, I guess, you know, I guess if people hate it, they wouldn't tell me, would they, maybe? But, <laughs> but all the people I've spoken to, I mean, and I've had loads of, like, comments and messages about people saying how handy they found the sounds and they really like them and they think it's a great idea and i just think think the fact that there's a story to it the fact that it's called nightlife that it's focused around club culture and that it's sort of reflective of my journey through through nightlife starting out in you know this music and kind of progressing through i think that resonates with people and i think people if people like my music and they like what i do and they think there's a good standard there then i guess they kind of look at that and think oh well these these could be this could be handy then people like disclosure yeah i mean that, that was just, <laughs> yeah, I, that was amazing really because funnily enough um that i've i've had i've still got sounds being used by all kinds of people sounds that i made for loop masters sounds i made for sample magic the native instrument stuff i still hear it in people's tracks now hmm. but it's it's weird there's almost a there's like a culture within house music where people don't want it to be known that they're using samples yeah. um it's kind of strange to me in a way I, I i'm trying to sort of i've been trying to figure it out i don't know why it is but in in hip-hop and in trap music for example that it's it's very people are just very they're just very upfront about the fact that they use a, a melodic loop or they use a keys loop or something to a point where other labels will actually talk about it so if a label on splice gets their sound used on a drake track they'll actually post about it publicly. Hey, just spotted this sound in, in the Drake record, right? I mean, part of it's because it's not actually Drake's production. It's his producer or the person's producer. Sure. But there's almost this, there's a kind of like reluctance to talk about it within dance, within house music. Oh, for it's sure. almost like a shame thing. Oh, I use this loop. I don't want anyone to know. And I kind of don't really see why there's such a big fuss. 
because there's so many ways to use things creatively, especially now with the technology that's around. It's not like you just have to take it and use it as is. You can pitch things up, pick things down. You can regroove stuff. Out of it, yeah. Yeah, you can put stuff through effects. You can mangle things. There's so much now that you can do. It's, it's essentially endless, really, what you can do. So, and, and also, if we are at a point where we're all having to be really productive and we're having to be really creative, be then anything that allows you and shortens that gap between yeah. you making something and finishing something has to be good in my view. And if you can give people good source material to work with, that surely is better than them plonking around, not knowing what they're doing for three hours and then coming up with something that still isn't as good as, you know, it's a tool at the end of the day. And, um, and also you can reverse engineer stuff. You can figure out how things are made and what the standard is. And, you know, and if it helps you get stuff out there and kind of be motivated and, and, uh, and, and actually create things, then uh, I think it's a good thing for me personally. So I've never really been that worried about it. So that's why I've never gone into detail about who uses the sounds and kind of call everybody out when I hear them because I get the <laughs> sense that people don't want that. But yeah. I've, had my, I've had my vocals and sounds used by people like Craig David, Stanton Warriors, My Digital Enemy, Mike Skinner from the Streets. All these kind of people have used the stuff. So Disclosure actually had already bought, I guess, acquired a couple of the packs previously, the garage ones, and they had all the, the one hits loaded into their sampler. And somebody basically watched their live stream and hit me up and said, hey, you know, Disclosure, we're using your sounds in the, the live stream. And I was like, oh, awesome. So, of course, I messaged them on Twitter and just said, nice, to, you know, great to see them using the sounds. They replied to me. And then I messaged them back door on the DM and just said, I'd love to hook you guys up with the new sounds if you want. Because Nightlife had just launched about a week or two ago. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and yeah, and basically he just went, I think it was, I think it was, uh, I think it was Guy that messaged me, but he just went, yeah, would love to, that would be great. And I just sent the sounds over, no pressure. I said, look, if you guys want to use something, there's loads of one shots in there, whatever you want, like loops, whatever you want to use. No pressure, but you don't want anything in return. But if you do use them and anybody asks you, it would be great if you would just mention Nightlife Audio. And he actually went, do you know what? I'm actually going to use some of them in this live stream for sure um, and definitely give you a shout. And then so I was kind of just expecting that. And then, of course, when they did it, it was just like they were just mentioning it every you know few minutes. <laughs> yeah. So I obviously, cut, I obviously cut that down and made the little video. And yeah, it was great. I mean, you can't really ask for a better start than that. No. If I couldn't have paid them to do that, no. you know. Um, but but what was great about them using the sounds was that they took what was there and they made it sound like them. You know, they were like, well, that's got a bit too much reverb, so let's tighten that up and let's chop that out. We only need that bit, and let you know. And so, which is exactly up... how you're supposed to use these samples. That's the point Absolutely. of being creative with it. Absolutely. And so, it ended up sounding like disclosure. Yeah. Um, and so, that was kind of a good lesson, I think, for people to say, well, yeah, look, your people are using this stuff, but you can make it sound like you with just a little bit of work and a little bit of attention to to what you want out of that sound and, and how you want it to groove and what fits with what you're doing, you can actually get it to, to have a bit of your personality as well. So that was a, that was a, that was a good lesson and it was a, it was a great start for the label. So I'm really happy about that. Wicked man. Well, I think that was a banging answer and it really highlighted a lot of the, the things I feel about, you know, samples and everything else the same. Um, I'm going to finish off. I've got like three little things that we do to finish off the podcast. But before we go into those, if people want to find out more about you, if they want to find more about your music, if they want to find more about nightlife, just hit us with some links or some key terms to Google or some handles, whatever it is, man, just get it out there. Yeah. So Instagram and uh, Twitter, Scott <coughs> underscore Diaz. 
um, on Facebook, obviously, is Scott Diaz. Um, Nightlife Audio is www.nightlifeaudio.com. We're also on on uh, on Instagram and Twitter as well. Uh, for the garage stuff, I've got Echelon UKG as a Instagram handle. That's for the stuff I'm doing with Matt, running our label Underground Freaks, which we haven't really talked much about. But um, but there's kind of like a garage project that I'm doing on the side. It's not a secret; everybody knows it's me. But I'm just using that separate name to you know disambiguate it all. Um, yeah, and other than that, just Scott Diaz. Google search is pretty well, pretty pretty nifty, and we'll bring up everything. I'm just buzzing that you use the word disambiguate. <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast that's fucking made my night right so we're going to go into three things one of them's new to the podcast but we're going to go into three things which which kind of we always do to end the show first one which is a new feature i've decided to do um i want to do some like quick fire questions with you um sure. so it doesn't have to be one word but don't go into like you know gigantic detail we're just going to get some quick little things so um first one which dj would you really not fancy having to follow Probably uh, Derek Carter or Luke Solomon. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, first, let's go over 18. First nightclub you remember going to legally that was an overage nightclub? God, I can't remember. Um, it's a good question. It probably would have. It probably would have been the Ocean Rooms because I had my 18th birthday party at the Ocean Rooms, nice, uh, which was a club in Brighton. Yeah, yeah, I did an 18th birthday party, and I was obviously, you know, wasn't 18 until midnight. So that would have. <laughs> that was the first time I would have been in at the age of 18. Fair enough. Um, going to go for like a, I want to track that. I'm not going to give it too much specific specificity to give you broad range to go at it, but a track that has probably influenced you the most. It's a good question. Um, I probably would say it would have to be probably something by MJ Cole. Okay. So it would probably be either, I mean, Sincere, not that I've ever made a record that sounds like Sincere, but who can make a record that sounds like Sincere? <laughs> or it would be something else, any of the stuff that he's done, really, any of the early VIP stuff. Um, or maybe for the more recent stuff, that was the kind of stuff I was trying to make years ago. But for the more recent stuff where I'm doing the kind of more jazzy deep house, it would probably be either somebody like uh, Fritz Wentink as a producer or, um, yeah, something like that. Cool, man. Somebody like um, that. Favourite club, favourite nightclub that you have DJed in where you just enjoyed the vibe, the setup, the crowd, the whatever the moment, but just favourite kind of nightclub. You can give me a gig, a specific gig if you want. But I'd just say, if- I'd say uh, it would either have to be somewhere in Croatia for Defected or probably uh, um, they weren't really clubs though. They were more kind of like daytime, outsidey sort of things. But club, I would say Eden and Ibiza for Defected. Just because cool. the just because the club's so good and the sound system's so clean and clear and it's just like a pleasure to play in there. And if we take you to Eden, which DJ would you like to warm up for the most? Who would you just be buzzing if you got that booking in? You got that email from your agent and you were like, "Oh, this is just perfect. I get to do a set and then stop and just enjoy them." It would probably be. <clears throat> I don't know. It would probably be somebody like. Um, It'd probably be somebody like Armin Van Helden or somebody like that. Yes. Somebody who's a kind of major sort of American name um, that I've me. kind of looked up to. That would probably that would probably do it. Because I've DJed with a lot of the other English guys and stuff like that. And you sort of lose that little bit of 
the gloss in a way because they become almost mates half the time and so yeah. you know but armor van helden somebody that i've never met so if i was to do that next summer or something that would still be a you know there'd still be some reverence there yeah i warmed up for van helden once man and it was a certainly a pinnacle in my dj career um if you were substituted in for Kyle Cox for the last night of space, and even if it wasn't the full night and Coxie was still playing, but just say you got to choose the last track. Obviously, I saw there's a video going around at the minute, and it's that wish I didn't miss you anymore thing that he plays at the end. Right. What track would you choose to play as the last track in that room? Whatever in space. Yeah, if you had the ability to choose that one last record in that last in that main room at whatever time it was in the morning, what record do you think you would play given that opportunity? I would either go. I don't know. I'd probably go with. I mean, unfinished sympathy is one of my favourites <clears throat> ever. I just feel like it's such a great tune, but I don't know if it really would fit there to be honest. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd just go housey. I'd, maybe I'd go Promised Land or something. Oh, nice bit of Joe Smooth. Yeah, because I just think that, that record's just so timeless and it's such a feel-good tune. I'd, you know, I'd probably need more time to think about it, but that's the one that... That would certainly be one of the last ones if it wasn't the last one. It'd be in that last 30 minutes for sure. Cool. Okay, <clears throat> moving on. We're going to do a dream gig. Again, this is just in the moment, so don't stress. I know it could be different tomorrow or last week or in six months' time, but I want a dream gig... I want a venue that you're going to hold this gig in. It can be uh, real or imaginary. It can be generic, like a huge festival or an underground pit, or it can be a, a place that you've played or a place that you want to play. Um, and I want three acts. There's not so much a headliner and a middle act and a warm up. Let's call it like, you know, equal billing. You can play. You can have back to backs. You can have bands. You can have dead or alive. You can have back to back to backs. You can do whatever you want. But just say that this gig could happen this weekend. Where's it going to take place, Scott Diaz? Oh, I'd probably have to go somewhere like one of the famous London venues that's no longer. Okay. So it it would have to be like the end or turn mills or something like that. Let's say the end. Nice. Um, Love that DJ and, booth in the end, man. Fucking hell. It was a special place, that place. Um, I don't know. If it could be any lineup, I probably would go like... I'd probably go something like, I'd probably have to do, I'd, I'd want Derek, de- definitely Luke Solomon to play. Okay. Cause I, I, cause I think Luke's an amazing DJ and I love the way that he doesn't like reach for anything obvious. Same as Derek. They play, they kind of play, they play grooves that you kind of like know, and it's all stuff that it's really easy to get into, but you don't really know any of the tunes, <laughs> you know? And I love that it's kind of like very underground, but like bumpy. And so I'd probably choose Luke for that. And then I guess if you could have anybody, you'd have to have like Larry Levan or somebody like that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then what else? What else did you need to know? No, I just want three people. So you can play if you want. Um, yeah, or, so I, and, and I'd be on there. Yeah. Of course. Well, that makes so it'd be to- me, Luke and Larry Levan. That makes total sense to me. Sounds pretty wild. Fucking wicked. Um, last thing we're going to do, Scott someone's been hopefully listening to this all the way through loads of people will do and i want you to name a track that's going to play out the podcast um it can be something of yours as a promo it can be something new it can be something old it can be something that we've talked about it can just be something that springs into your head which potentially you want someone to listen to having just listened to an hour and 40 odd minutes of us having a natter but i want you to introduce it and then tell people why you want them to kind of listen to it now and then i'll put it on at the end of podcasting post okay so i would probably say the thing the thing that 
sort of jumps out at me would be Scott Diaz Mistreated, uh, which is on my label Grand Plans. And I think that it's probably it's the probably the record I've 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 done that's done the best in many senses. Um, it's kind of reached a lot of people. It got me the the attention of um, you know labels like Defected and kind of the ears of people in there. And it's kind of yeah, it's like a nice kind of I love that sort of yearning emotional quality to it. Um, and it seems to resonate with people. So as a kind of good sort of cross section of where I've been at musically for the last few years with that deeper stuff, this is probably a really good example of that. So Scott Diaz mistreated, I would Wicked. say. Wicked. Thanks for the chat, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a mighty, mighty chat. So I hope to speak to you soon. Awesome. All the best, man. No worries. Peace. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.